cancer, garbage, murder, caution, terrorist, castigation, police conspiracy, dramatic urban torture, drunk driving, hostage siege, government shutdown, collapses, desperation, despair, deep into death. <coughs> This is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. Venezuela, in the imagination of the United States, is a nation that is governed by a corrupt president who is the heir to a socialist experiment that has become a nightmare for the Venezuelan people, leading to deprivations, disease, and death. The only thing that seems to be more unpopular than the current government and its leader President Nicolas Maduro, seems to be the opposition. Seemingly the only people supporting the opposition and their supposed leader, Juan Guaido, are outsiders like the U.S. and the Biden administration, which continues to recognize Guaido as president, despite Guaido never getting a vote. And after serving his term, no longer being an elected official in any capacity. So how did Venezuela, which was in the process of a revolution toward direct democracy and participatory politics, and socialism get such horrible representation within government. The Chavista government of Maduro has lost its popularity, so the revolution, one would assume, must be over, abandoned by, like, as a utopian folly. In reality, Chavismo endures and lives on as many on the ground still engage in the Bolivarian revolution's Chavismo. Well, still exists to a degree. The problem lies in the disconnect between the Chavista government and the Chavismo movement, and the government has turned to practical, pragmatic solutions to work with capitalism instead of the revolution's demand of challenging the Venezuelan and global establishment and transforming to a new way of living and life. We'll learn what is ex exactly and actually happening in Venezuela on the ground in a few when we speak with Sierra Pascual Marquina and Chris Gilbert, co-authors of Venezuela, The Present as Struggle, Voices from the Bolivarian Revolution. Sierra is political science professor at the Universidad Bolivariana de Venezuela in Caracas and a writer and editor for VenezuelaAnalysis.com. Chris teaches Marxist political economy at the Universidad Bolivariana de Venezuela. Sierra and Chris are creators of the Marxist educational program Escuela de Cuadros, broadcast on Venezuelan public television. You can find their writing at VenezuelaAnalysis.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live stream host, Chuck Mertz, whatever format we're in right now, producing this morning's show, if it's Wednesday. It must be Richard Norwood. Richard, how are you doing? Anything new by you? Any stories about the huge snowstorm we just got? Uh... I'm doing well. Uh, I'd like to give a thanks to uh, Pete for shoveling out the back to... Of course, it was to no avail for me, because I got my car stuck in the alley. Did you really? <laughs> I couldn't get down your alley, because I was kind of a small car. and uh, It's just ruts. Uh, yeah, exactly. It was it was rough. I, so, I got about 10 feet in, and then uh, couldn't get any. And, and it's like kind of, it's a little bit of a warmer day, and the, sh the snow's kind of getting a little really slushy. Yeah. And, yeah, I just I, I luckily I got back out on the street and I found a spot nearby that I didn't have to take away anybody's dibs and 
Are there lots of dibs going on by your house? Yeah, but, uh, yeah, for a fair amount for sure. Any favorite yeah. piece of furniture or anything you've seen out nah, there? Not really, just the normal plasticky crap. My favorite are uh, broken vacuum cleaners and lamps. <laughs> and my favorite ever, though, yeah, is still old uh, living room furniture. Yes, yes, <laughs> but my favorite still is in Bridgeport. They do dibs during the summer. <laughs> and uh, I saw a toilet out in the street one time holding it. So nice. I thought that was very, very nice. Yesterday, I woke up at 6.30, made coffee, took a shower, started getting ready to do the show, was completely ready to do the show when I looked out my back window, and there was a four-foot snow drift on our third-floor back deck. I started calculating how much weight our back deck can actually hold. So I went to the back door and figured, well, maybe it's not so bad out there, and you couldn't see the back stairs because they were under what looked like a mountain of snow. There was no suggestion that there were actually stairs there. That's when I went down the interior stairwell, you know, out front to go get the newspaper. Yeah, I still get a newspaper delivered to my home every day. I know. What are you going to do? And there was no New York Times to greet me. Instead, I was greeted by another two-foot snowdrift blocking the front door, and our walkway to the sidewalk, as well as the sidewalk, were all under drifts of at least three feet of snow. We got 15 inches, but there was already snowpack on the ground, and snowplows have been throwing more and more snow up onto these huge piles, as have snow blowers and people shoveling their snow. My backyard looks like Stalingrad. (laughs) (laughs) So... After seeing all of that, I turned around and went right back upstairs and declared a snow day, by which time I was freezing and I went right back to bed. Thanks to all of you for your patience yesterday and allowing us to have a snow day, because I couldn't in good conscience have anyone drive to the studio to do the show, and even if they did, the parking lot here was under a couple feet of snow drifts, the back stairs were impassable, as Richard was just saying, the alley is impossible. And the back door to the studio here was completely blocked by snow and ice, which means just getting in here would have been a huge production. It's gotten so bad that Mel the cat is no longer living outside in his little house because his house became encased in ice and was totally blocked by snow, so he couldn't get out. So he's now living in the bar, and I think he's running up a pretty big tab. But more importantly than any of that, Richard, what is this week's question from hell? Oh, Richard. No, you, you caught me <laughs> off guard. I know, sorry. <laughs> What's something about you that only the algorithm knows? <laughs> What's something about you that only the algorithm knows? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question. Mel wins your choice of whatever. This is how merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can see all the ways you can contribute to. Remember, we are completely listener-supported. This is hell. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. We do not accept any commercial or grant money. And we're so not-for-profit that we don't have enough money to actually become a not-for-profit. So again, it's all because of you. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. During this week's Moment of Truth, Jeff celebrates Fat History Month. Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Again, what's something about you that only the algorithm knows? Following our guests, you can also email, DM via Twitter, or message us through Facebook with your thoughts, criticism, guest and topic suggestions, or anything you want to send us. 
We will most likely share your thoughts with everyone on air, and if you like or do not like, approve or disapprove of any of our guest or topic suggestions made by other listeners, if you want to second a guest suggestion or voice your disapproval of a topic, we want to hear that too. Jonah emailed with a guest suggestion writing, Hi Chuck and team, love you guys. Thank you so much for helping me make sense of the world. Just wondering if you have ever considered having Benjamin Bratton on the show. His book, his 2015 book, The Stack, was such a fascinating synthesis of different ideas about artificial intelligence, political theory, and geography. He offers a really refreshing critique of the relations of production. We'll continue to support Jonah. You can find out more about Benjamin Bratton at his website, Bratton, B-R-A-T-T-O-N dot info. However, it's apparently not up to date because it does not mention his latest book, which was just published only a few weeks ago in January, titled Revenge of the Real, Post-Pandemic Politics. Here's a quick description. How has the city and the regimes of control changed as a result of the lockdown? Bratton argues that the crisis makes apparent the symptoms that were already affecting the city, but we have to rethink how we might challenge them. This involves the question of surveillance, the future of quarantine, the development of a political consensus. This will have an impact on our everyday lives at the most profound level. Will the wearing of masks Every time we go out, change the way we interact. Will we have to accept state surveillance as the new normal? Will automation take over the tasks we can no longer perform due to fears of contagion? Will the experience of quarantine become a regular part of our planning? How do we deal with experts in the age of populism? And those are all very interesting questions. So, Jonah, this sounds really great. And we'll be checking on Benjamin's availability. And if we have him on the show, we will be personally thanking you on air as we thank all of our listeners when we have one of their guest suggestions on the show. Bailey got back to us about their comment on whether we should have politicians on this show, which yet again, you all have implored us to continue observing our rule that is more of a guideline, which is no politicians or people from big business on the show. Bailey told us the only politician to have on the show is Huey Long, who died in 1935. So we read that email on Monday. Bailey rewrote us and explained, yeah, so sure, Huey Long's dead. He cannot be in the show. So you can't, therefore, have a politician. That's the joke part. But there's a more serious part of the comment I left unstated. Huey was the Bernie Sanders we wanted in 2016. Taking Richard Wolff's, past guest on our show, Richard Wolff's advice to listen to Huey's speeches on YouTube, wow, it is all Bernie Sanders. But the difference is Huey Long played to win. He faced in Louisiana calcified elite rule for the wealthy and the corporations he called the Bourbons. His objective was not just to get his ideas out or just to get elected, but to utterly destroy the Bourbons and their allies. And he did. And he taxed them. And he built public assets everywhere. Roads, schools, medical facilities, etc. And everyone got access. All colors, too. So the serious part is perhaps we would be in a different place now had Bernie Sanders totally destroyed his primary and party leadership opposition, as he had the opportunity to do twice. So if you could get Huey to answer his phone calls, he'd be the good politician on the show and the only one. First, we have the best listeners. Second, Alex is diligently working on trying to converse with the dead. And if Alex has any luck, Huey Long will be on the show. And soon, Bailey, if Huey does appear on the show again, 
we will personally thank you on air. We also got an email from Adam who says, on Friday you played the interview with Howard Zinn from 2006 on Patreon. You Then today, on Monday, you had on the live show, this is hell.com, Sabelo and Lovu Getcheni. As far as I can remember, for the interviews, as opposed to the weekly for listeners, these are my two all-time favorite questions from hell you've ever asked, with two superbly insightful answers to go along with them. It's crazy. They wound up being back-to-back from Patreon to the live show on Monday when they were actually 15 years apart. So if you want to hear our question from hell from Forcebelo, you can find the entire show at our Facebook page right now and at thisishell.com. For the question from hell we posed to Howard Zinn back in 2006, you have to be a This Is Hell subscriber on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Speaking of Patreon, on Monday, Monday, we neglected to mention the passing of past guest on This Is Hell, James Ridgway. This is from the New York Times obituary. James Ridgway, an investigative reporter who exposed corporate dirty tricks, the secrets of environmental polluters, and the horrors of solitary confinement in the nation's prison systems, died on Saturday. In a career that spans six decades, Mr. Ridgway wrote for the New Republic as a staff member and as a contributor to the New York Times, the Nation, the New York Review of Books, Ramparts, and so on. His targets were legion. Detroit automakers concealing unsafe car designs, the strutting KKK and neo-Nazis, universities profiteering from government weapons research, unanswered questions on the 9-11 attacks, the shabbiness of the sex industry, and 1992 presidential candidates who were caught on film preening when they thought nobody was watching. Mr. Ridgway uh, attacked malfeasance and skullduggery in a... American life with a passion, as one critic put it, so earnest and straightforward that he can make a lengthy explanation of sewage interesting. His longest and most fervent crusade was his last, a decade-long effort in what might otherwise have been his retirement years against solitary confinement. And you can find out more about James' work on solitary confinement by going to solitarywatch.org. That work will continue. All of which is to say, this Friday on Patreon, we will be sharing our August 2007 interview with James Ridgway. James was on back then to talk about, get this, his cover story in that month's Mother Jones, In Search of John Doe Number 2, the story that the feds never told about the Oklahoma City bombing. Federal officials insist that the Oklahoma City bombing was solved a decade ago, but but a Salt Lake City lawyer in search of his brother's killers has dug up Some remarkable clues on cross-dressing bank robbers, the FBI, and the mysterious third man. But the only way you're going to be able to hear that is if you become a subscriber on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Thanks to our newest subscribers on Patreon, Nilla B., Jennifer B., and Kurt S. Thanks, Nilla, Jennifer, and Kurt for joining us on Patreon. Live from late capitalism where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. Coming up on This Is Hell, the disconnect between Venezuela's government and the movement that created it. And we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what's something about you that only the algorithm knows? I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live stream podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Richard Norwood. Live from the United States, where property has more rights than people. This is hell. When we think of Venezuela here in the United States, when we see media reports on Venezuela, they all seem to be focused on the government and its far-right opposition and the unpopularity of both. Here to help us understand why the government and opposition are both unpopular in Venezuela and what that reveals about the current state of Chavismo and the Bolivarian Revolution 
Sierra Pasquale Marquina and Chris Gilbert are co-authors of the new book, Venezuela, The President's Struggle, Voices from the Bolivarian Revolution. First, welcome to This Is Hell, Sierra. Hello, it's good to be with you. Thanks. Sierra is political science professor at the Universidad Bolivariana de Venezuela in Caracas and a writer and editor for VenezuelaAnalysis.com. Chris also teaches Marxist political economy at the Universidad Bolivariana de Venezuela. Welcome to This Is Hell, Chris. Thank you. Chris and Sira are also creators of the Marxist educational program, Escuela de Cuadros, broadcast on Venezuelan public TV. And you can, again, find all of their writing at venezuelanalysis.com. Let's start with you, Chris. You write that since its early days, the Bolivarian process opened itself to the voices of poor Venezuelans with men and women of the barrios and the campo who would in turn become the subjects of the revolution. With Hugo Chavez, they began a creative process aimed at the reorganization of Venezuelan society. So this past weekend, Chris, the New York Times ran a story by their reporter in Caracas, Anatoly Kumenov, and the Times diplomatic a correspondent based in D.C., Laura Jakes, headlined, To Fight or, Adopt, or Adapt, Venezuela's Fading Opposition Struggles to Keep Going. And the story focused on what has happened since. As they write, two years ago, Juan Guaido transformed himself from little-known lawmaker to national hero by posing the most serious threat to date, the deeply unpopular Nicolas Maduro. So, Chris, what happens when we have this focus here in the United States on Venezuela's leadership to understand what is happening in Venezuela instead of a focus on the Venezuelan people? How do we understand Venezuela in possibly a misleading way? Sure. Um, this is a problem, of course, focusing on, on leadership and focusing on government or the state to, to take a somewhat broader approach. That's not just a problem in Venezuela. I mean, that's not just a problem with the news coverage of Venezuela. That's an almost universal problem. So when people think about what happens in Europe, they not almost, almost consistently focus on state politics. But it's especially problematic here because there has been a tremendous revolution that shook the country in a favorable way. And so it seems almost um, in bad faith not to turn to, not to pay, not to pay attention to a wider swath of society. Of course, and I'm not, I haven't read the articles you refer to, um, but I can imagine the perspective they take. Um, of course, it's in the interest of that kind of right-wing press or pro-imperialist press to not pay attention to what people think or what people do with what we call, from our perspective, the basis of the movement basis of the Bolivarian movement. It's in their interest not to pay attention to them, but maybe more surprising, and this is maybe one of the principal motives for us developing this book, uh, The President's Struggle, is that even in the left, even the international left, and even the left in Venezuela, there's a kind of blind spot that's developed. It's a very surprising blind spot because initially the ideals of the revolution, which were to an important degree realized, were such things as protagonistic and and participatory democracy. Um, later, it's just things as socialism and the commune. But even the notion of participation, which was one of the key ideas in the early part of the movement, that seems to have been um, silently and insidiously pushed to the wayside. So one of the things we wanted to recover was that idea, not only in terms of the content, but also in the procedure in which the book was developed. The book was developed through um, interviews with people. And it was a, quite an organic process, in fact, we, one of the things that happened to us, and I guess you could say that we ourselves have been praised somewhat to this blind spot, is that when we began to look at the interviews, we began to see that there was indeed a response, uh, a kind of popular a response coming to the basis, 
coming from the bases to the crisis that Venezuela is going through. So that was kind of the moment of illumination for us. We thought, wow, uh, Venezuela is indeed going through a giant crisis, which has many dimensions, including an economic one in great measure, but not exclusively the result of the sanctions. Uh, but the question is how to get out of this crisis. And it was almost a surprise, a big revelation to us that almost nobody was paying attention to the masses. And of course, as I, to go back to what I, how I began, naturally the right wing doesn't want to pay attention to the masses. But even more surprising, the left and the left government, uh, which, which is probably less and less left, but they didn't, and their, their leaders didn't have much interest in the bases. So that was the basic premise of the book, to go back to the bases and listen to them. I guess one thing um, that impressed us too is that not only were there interesting responses, but there was a high degree of coincidence in there. That's to say, the responses coincided. There wasn't a consensus, but there was a high degree of consensus on what should be um, a high degree of coincidence as regard to what should be done faced with the crisis. So, for example, a basic idea that people had was to go back to Chavez. You now, Chavez had died. The book was principally, the interviews are principally in 2018 or exclusively in 2018 through 2019. So, so Chavez had died six years previously. And a basic idea was to go back to Chavez, but not just Chavez in, as an image, not Chavez as an icon, but Chavez as his project to recover such things as the socialist project and to recover a participative democracy and to recover the commune. You could say that Chavez basically died. One of his last um, statements, his last statement of important substance ended with the declaration, Comuno nada, no, commune or nothing. So he cast his lot with the commune. So we saw that from these different groups of people we interviewed, which were people from the bases, also organic intellectuals, uh, activists, feminist activists, um, uh, campesino leaders, there was this kind of consensus that one should go back to Chavez's project, and that would be the way forward out of the crisis. Let me just follow up on that with you, Sira. How much can we blame the left, say here in the United States, for not paying attention to what is happening on the ground with the continuation of Chavismo and the people who are still trying to participate within the Bolivarian Revolution? How much can we blame the left? I mean, how difficult is it for those who are not actively participating within a revolutionary process First of all, to understand that process, and can we blame the New York Times for, or can we blame the left when the New York Times is only focusing on Maduro and Guaido? Is the is the problem here in the United States that nobody is focusing on the people of Venezuela, and so the information just cannot get to the left here in the United States to show their support? Well, I think that uh, if we look at uh, basically at the exercise of internationalism. Uh, we should think about an exercise that commits with a project in its, to its full extent. No, so the Bolivarian process, the core at the core of the Bolivarian process are the people, and of course, there is a government. There has been a government that was committed to the people, and there was a common project. And then there was sort of there was a, the beginning of a split, we could say, between the people who commit who had committed and who were continuing to. Uh, organize and produce a new way of organizing society, a communal way of organizing society, and the government, which under a lot of international pressure, uh, took a more pragmatic road, took a more capitalistic road, we could say. So when we talk about internationalism, I think that what a good internationalists should do is commit to a project, but commit to a project not because of its government, but because of its people. 
And of course, we are totally against the sanctions and the interventionism from the United States and Europe, etc. But it is important to highlight that a good uh, commitment to the people of Venezuela who have given a lot to make a an alternative proposal to capitalism involves understanding what the people are doing. In other words, we cannot really follow uh, the trend that the mainstream media sets up for us. We, uh, we are the people who are committed to be organizing the world as internationalists and as revolutionary, local revolutionaries. And as such, I think that, uh, I mean, my call would be to people in the US and the US left to really understand what is going on here and to really commit so that this project, which is alive, uh, can continue to to grow and to bloom. And Chris, you also point out that today, 20 years after the beginning of the Bolivarian process, the voices of the men and women who live, work, and struggle in Venezuela, you point out again, are, are rarely heard. Last week, Telesur reported that the U.S. Government Accountability Office acknowledged that U.S. sanctions on Venezuela have killed tens of thousands of people and harmed the country's economy especially by depressing its oil production. In a new report, the GAO also recalled that the sanctions imposed on the country under former uh, President Barack Obama's and Donald Trump's administrations are also hindering U.S.-backed humanitarian aid to Venezuela. So, Chris, to what extent, then, are the people not being heard? Has democracy been undermined by U.S. sanctions on Venezuela? Can we, can we blame this inability for the people to be heard on U.S. sanctions, and to what degree can we? Well, I think in a very limited way. I wouldn't point to that as being the key concern. And I shouldn't say that democracy here is any more undermined than in any country of the global north. In other words, of course, there's been a tremendous step back from the participative democracy that existed to a great degree under Chavez or began to exist. But it's, but it's far from being the case that uh, this government is anti-democratic. In fact, I'd like to point out that um, you know, that Maduro may be unpopular in some wide sense, but that doesn't differentiate him from almost um, or a great many of the leaders that are that are taken to be legitimate in the global north. And I'd also like to point out that his government has more legitimacy than most governments of the global north having passed through more electoral um, tests, you could say. So that's not really the issue. I think um, as far as people not being heard, I think there are a number of factors. In fact, going back to the internationalism issue, I don't have an explanation for why internationalism is so poor today. Nevertheless, it's a fact. I mean, if you look at uh, important movements that developed in the last decade, even, uh, you could think of the Quinceanme movement that developed in the Spanish state, the 15th of May movement, that was in some degree a response to the crisis. That was treated in a very picturesque, uh, I mean, the 2008, 2000, yeah, 2007, 2008 crisis. That was in some extent given coverage, but it was covered, given coverage in a very picturesque way. But even more striking to me is if you look at what happened in Syriza, well, Syriza in, in Greece, but the whole movement surrounding, you know, Greece's response to the crisis, part of which was the Syriza party. And the real poverty of international responses to that, you would think that workers' movements, unions, uh, parties of the left, they would have showed a great deal of solidarity. There would have been spontaneous manifestations to defend Greek sovereignty faced with the, Europe, of the European Union basically to defend their right of self-determination. Or another even more recent phenomenon is the Gilets Jaunes, the Yellow Vest movement in, in France. People just stood by as onlookers. They didn't find a way of supporting the movement. So for whatever reason, as a kind of globalization, that's called a capitalist globalization, or in this case, it becomes very evident as a capitalist globalization, that people do not or have lost their ability to 
pay attention to what comes from below in a society. I'm always struck, and just to take a reference, I, I remember that, um, um, of course, as Marxists were well-versed in certain kind of history, uh, revolutionary history, and I remember uh, reading that after the February Revolution in 2017, Lenin received a telegram from Baltimore workers, or the rather the, the Russian Social Democratic Party received a telegram from from Baltimore workers saying, "This is a good first step, but you still have a long way to go." And uh, Lenin said, "This is a great telegram." What's interesting about it is that Baltimore workers were not only aware of what was going on in the, in the Soviet Union, what would be the Soviet Union but they were also aware of the class struggle in the Soviet Union and what would be the Soviet Union in Russia. And so that kind of internationalism, which is aware of you know, class differences, which can see things from below, that's certainly passed by the wayside around the world. I, I think it's important to recover it. I think it's, um, you could say it's a part of the, the trickery of capitalism. You know, capitalism, especially as it develops, is able to make us look, see things in an inverted way, Marx repeatedly said. And perhaps internationalism today is also seen in that inter inverted way in which uh, we look at the top of the society and we can't see the real basis or even the majority of the society. In Syria, as is pointed out in the introduction, uh, it states that in the wake of the opposition's violent street actions of 2017, which involved barricades and lynchings and the government's calling of the National Constituent Assembly, there emerged a new scenario in Venezuela. This is the, era, the part that you focus on in your writing. It could be described as a deadlock between opposing tendencies in which if Nicolas Maduro's government enjoyed relative stability, then there were also increasingly aggressive U.S. actions, economic warfare, hyperinflation, and a bald but unsuccessful coup attempt led by Juan Guaido in the spring of 2019. And as Chris was just pointing out, the U.S. sanctions are not having that effect on the people and the movement within Chavismo, that the sanctions at times we can focus on them a little bit too much, which takes away the agency from the Venezuelan people. But here in this case, the more Maduro has success, it seems like, and the more that he gives the people stability, the more aggressive the U.S. becomes in destroying Venezuelan stability and success. So does stability under Maduro mean that there will be more U.S. aggression? And what impact does that have on the disconnect between the Chavista government and the Chavista movement? Well, first, I would say that, I mean, just to clarify something, the sanctions are criminal and they are killing people every day. Um, but uh, what we were pointing to is that the sanctions don't are not necessarily the key element to understand why there has been a limitation to the process, to the Bolivarian process, to the growth of the Bolivarian process. So talking about stability, it's kind of like the, the issue of stability, that's another issue that we can look at, at from a, a different perspective. First, when we are talking about a revolution, uh, stability is not necessarily what we look for. I mean, those of us who are committed to the project of the commune, we are not looking for stability because stability is the continuation of the status quo. In other words, Venezuela continues to be a capitalist society and we do not want a capitalist society. We want a society that transitions towards socialism through the commune. But uh, indeed, the it would seem, it would surprisingly seem uh, that uh, the sanctions to a certain degree generate stability within the the Bolivarian government. Why? Because it basically uh, all the problems, all the problems that we face every day in Venezuela can be point. The government can point to the to the sanctions 
to not deal with the real problems. And, uh, and while the sanctions are a real problem, they are not at the root of all problems. So stability. Uh, I first would question stability as, as an objective, but then uh, what you were saying is, well, there is apparently a relative uh, stability within the government. What does that mean in relation to the US? Is the US going to push for more sanctions given that there's stability because they obviously do have the objective of overthrowing this democratically elected government? I really don't know. I mean, the Biden administration seems to be giving a few tiny signs of loosening up on some of the sanctions, especially uh, we think that they are losing up on in them in relation to the coming in of some vaccines for COVID. Uh, so, but there are very, very, very uh, subtle changes that may be happening. So what is going to happen with the next administration? We don't know. We do know that the Venezuelan government is totally committed uh, to making, uh, I would say, almost whatever uh, concessions are necessary to to end with uh, to end with the sanctions. Uh, but will the sanctions end or not? Uh, who knows? It is also true that the international oil corporations are pressuring the U.S. government to loosen the to loosen the sanctions because they actually do hurt them. There is a huge oil reserve in Venezuela and the oil the big oil corporations do want to have their piece of the pie here and speaking of that uh, the venezuelan government is actually doing every can everything it can to open up to these to these corporations actually about uh, six months ago a new law was passed which is the anti-sanctions law which basically opens up for international investment uh, in a very broad way including in the oil sector so the government is doing everything it can to um, generate the conditions so that the U.S. will lift sanctions. We are in favor of the U.S. lifting sanctions, but I would say that most of the people that we interview are, and ourselves are not necessarily in favor of making all the concessions, uh, all the kinds of concessions that the government considers are necessary to lift uh, the sanctions. So, Chris, just to follow up on that, because it's a topic that has come up a few times on our show recently, there's this criticism of the government in Bolivia and how their socialist project is possibly being funded by resource extraction and the future of lithium extraction. And a lot of people have been very critical of socialism being funded by fossil fuel or any kind of extractive industry that is bad for the environment or contributes to climate change. What would you say to someone who is critical of Venezuela when their socialist project is being funded by the profits from fossil fuel extraction? Uh, there are two things to say about that. One is, I mean, extractivism was, of course, bad. The question of whether it's a necessary evil, there's two, there's two downsides to extractivism. One is the obvious environmental damage that it does. But the other thing is that it tends to, I mean, of course, I'm going to say that it distorts the economy. But that's, um, of course, to say distorts a capitalist economy is almost empty because capitalist economies are, are distorted in themselves. So, But it is true that it produces a certain kind of, it tends to produce a kind of central, excessively centralized economy that lends itself to a certain kind of corruption and probably lends itself to a certain exaggerated um, difference between classes an exaggerated genie, for example. But um, so those are the two negative sides of extractivism. But I would say that it's almost a necessity. And there's a great deal of, um, it's almost a necessity for countries of the global south. It's certain, there's certainly a great deal of bad faith when people from the global north 
uh, tried to deny countries of the global south to engage in extractivism, not only because they themselves engage in extractivism, I mean, mining and, and oil extraction, but even in their origins, there was a great deal of primitive accumulation of that kind. The United States is a classic case. I mean, the United States was until recently one of the biggest oil producers in the world. Even right now, it may be certainly one of the biggest oil producers. But um, you could say there's a kind of primitive accumulation that happened in the United States through extractive kinds of mining and, and oil, oil drilling and well, well, production of oil wells. So it's really quite problematic when people point to the global south that they can't engage in that. Now, the question is, engaging this necessary evil, how should it be managed? So many anti-extractivists, and there's a whole tendency in the left that follows this line, and they are certainly right to a certain degree, but um, many of them um, point to the fact that a lot of the extractivism isn't even properly directed. In other words, like it should be directed towards the public good. In our case, we believe it should be directed towards, um, towards constructing socialism. So I think with those kind of caveats, it's important to recognize that for countries like Bolivia, Venezuela, they have this possibility. They have this possibility to use a non-renewable good to construct something that could be lasting and sustainable. It should be done with the greatest caution possible and greatest transparency, you know, popular participation, because that's the best way of fighting corruption. I'd like to point out in our book that we have a section devoted to I, one of the six sections is on the oil and the economy. And so we wanted to bring that into account. I think our book is a kind of, has a kind of balance, happy balance, I believe, between a kind of from the below perspective, you know, from the basis perspective, you could say a somewhat anarchist perspective, but also perspective, also another perspective, which is aware of the importance of leadership and aware of the importance of even the state to protect popular power. And also aware, in this case, it's extremely important to Venezuela the importance of recovering the oil resource and directing it towards the public good. So we have a series of interviews that deal with the oil resource, which I think are worth reading a kind of, and some of them address the question of extractivism, which is indeed a problem, but it, I believe it's a necessary evil for many countries of the global south. And you also point towards the idea that a revolution should not be a static thing, that it should be a verb, that it should be something that's ongoing. Sarah, last week we were speaking with architect Keller Easterling, and uh, she has a new book out called Medium Design. Keller writes, aspiring to find the solution, declare the end of a problem or establish stability once and for all, often results in a denial of information or an attempt to keep circumstance at bay. But medium design treats solutions as weak positions that do not take advantage of all that space can do. So, Sarah, what happens to revolution when it adheres to a certain solution or ideology? What happens to revolution when it becomes de defined as the solution? Well, first of all, I, I think that uh, I understand what you're proposing. And indeed, I believe that revolutions are processes. Uh, we could uh, quote Trotsky when he talks about the permanent revolution. And, and as such, they are in a permanent, uh, in a constant process of const contradictions and rebuilding themselves and so on. But at the same time, I would say that the revolution has to have an objective, no? Um, basically, in 2006, Hugo Chavez proposes that 
the Venezuelan revolution should uh, propose should have as its objective uh, socialism. He says 21st century socialism, and he says 21st century socialism precisely to break from the real socialism uh, experiments of the 20th century. So. Um, when, when we talk about the revolution, however, if we talk about the people that we've talked to, the people that we and the, the, the people that we work with uh, to to make this uh, book, and this book, by the way, comes out of our commitment, our day-to-day -day commitment to the Bolivarian process, because these are people that are uh, leaders or people who are actually working on making the alternative. Uh, all sorts of contradictions come up, and of course, with contradictions come comes. Uh, Let's say a timeline that is not uh, that is not totally uh, unbroken. A timeline where there's advances and where there's uh, comebacks, where there's contradictions, and when when there are conflicts. And in this in this way, a, a revolution should not be considered as something static. Precisely when people focus only on the government. Uh, from the left, no. When people uh, focus only on the government, I think that they are what they are doing is considering the revolution as a, kind of like a, a line, an unbroken line, where where things are going in one definite direction and everything is going well in the sense that the government is still there. Well, no. I mean, things are a lot more complicated. People are building. Uh, communes. People are building communes that day to day with a lot of problems that they face. The, the problems that people face in quotidian society in Venezuela. But right now, for instance, with the sanctions, people in, in rural communes have problems uh, getting the, the gasoline or the gas oil to, to get food to Caracas or to the different centers where they distribute. So there's kind of like day-to-day -day problems that they face, but there's also larger problems. And within the larger problems and within the contradictions that lay in the larger problems, possible alternatives to overcoming the problems come up. So looking at those contradictions, looking at those problems and those contradictions, and from there looking at the possibility of a better future of a better collective future, of a better communal future, as we would say, is very important. So yes, overall, I would agree, revolutions are not shouldn't be considered static. If they are static, they are probably not revolutions. And I could say that in that sense, there is still a revolutionary process here because people are thinking, people are building, people are running into problems, people are thinking about how to solve the problems. And within those contradictions, the future may emerge. And Chris, you write of all the people you or Sarah has interviewed, you and Sarah have interviewed for your book, despite all their different perspectives, quote, all concurred that the most important thing about Chavez was his project, in essence, a proposal that developed through time in a dialogic relation with both Venezuelan reality and the history of really existing socialism to materialize itself in the project of a communal path towards socialism. Was that is that communal path, Chris, toward socialism? Is that unique when it comes to the history of socialist projects? And if so, what made it different than past attempts to eventually, hopefully, achieve socialism? Sure, that's, I'm glad you asked that question. I um, the um, there's an important to it's you point to present the question well because I think it's important not to um, present the Bolivarian Revolution as completely unique. Um, of course, in a almost tautological sense, every revolution is unique, but it's important to recover the universal aspects of the Bolivarian revolution. I mean, universal in the sense of their, their contributions to the universal effort to create socialism. Um, and so those, 
the communist part of that, that universal contribution, I think, towards socialism. Of course, there are things related to the commune in Venezuela that probably connect to things specific to Venezuelan culture and Venezuelan history. Um, Venezuela, like other Latin American societies, um, but this is the one that I know best, uh, has certain indigenous roots. Uh, where we are in Caracas right now was a territory of Car the Caribes, an indigenous group that was kind of an, they were kind of like natural anarchists. Uh, and so they, this kind of certain attitudes of solidarity, social solidarity that probably come from indigenous culture is still alive in Venezuela. But I think the important thing, and that, in other words, that may be some things of a particular local culture that make commune, construction of communes especially relevant here. But I'd like to point to another, um, you know, a more important and more universal part of the communal, the idea of a communal path towards, like, towards socialism. It's deeply connected to the idea of democracy, which is, I think is also part of Chavez's legacy, his universal legacy. Chavez trying to put revolutionary democracy, popular democracy, participatory democracy in the foreground. Um, and that is not in any way an ingenuous idea. Chavez was a very studied person and a, a thoughtful, intelligent person. Um, sometimes people try to remember him in a false way as a kind of what we call Bravo Khan, a loudmouth. But in fact, when you look at Chavez, he was mostly engaged in very um, intelligent, careful analysis and often in a very calm way. So people have distorted the image of Chavez. But what I wanted to point to about democracy is that Chavez went hand in hand with the Hungarian philosopher, Istvan Masados, who was a friend of Chavez's. Um, he, they developed this critique, or principally Masaros, developed this critique of actually existing socialism. I mean, Soviet socialism and other East Bloc socialisms. They argued that, it, that what had happened is that capitalism had been defeated but capital was another thing. Capital and its logic continued to exist in the society. So capital, capital, the logic of the capital continued to exist in a post-capitalist society. And the logic of the capital was intimately related to, you could say, the absence of democracy. You could say hierarchical notions of uh, hierarchies operating in the workplace. So based with that idea, they came to the very studied critique of, of um, real socialism, of, of East Bloc socialism, that what was needed was kind of molecular democracy, grassroots democracy, to put it in a simple way. And so the commune was the Venezuelan effort, Chavez's idea of how to implement this kind of democratic, molecular, metabolic, democratic control over the production, which is, of course, in any society, you can have democracy in to vote, you know, for different things. But with key, one of the key elements in which democracy has to operate is in the productive sphere. What's going to be produced? How is it going to be produced? How is it going to be distributed after it's going to be produced? So putting democracy in the workplace, that was a central idea. And Venezuelan communes are not only political entities, they're also productive entities. So I think that's one of the important legacies um, that Chavez, we could say a universal legacy of Chavez. You know, the, the construction of socialism is a universal project because unfortunately capitalism is universal right now. So um, the efforts to do so, whether they're efforts to date back to the Paris Commune or the Russian Revolution or the Chinese Revolution or the Vietnamese Revolution. All those things contribute, many of them are quite universal and applicable, widely applicable. In that sense, I think like to think that our book is a kind of time capsule. We hope that the Venezuelan bases will be able to put forth their project and pressure the government to rectify. Nevertheless, should this whole thing be buried by history and Venezuelan revolution enter into, let's say, a, the museums of revolutions, we hope that this book will provide a kind of time capsule that will show people, like other books, you know, like William Hinton's books, Fanchon about the Chinese commune, will 
show people what a revolutionary moment is like. I think that's important because revolutionary moments are, are always covered over by history. The chance when ordinary people become the protagonists or heroes of history. We've seen that with our own eyes. And it happened in, in the Russian Revolution. It happened in the Chinese Revolution. Um, it's an important thing to recover, the idea that people are protagonists. They take history by its reins. They take the bull by the horns and go forward. So we hope our book presents that image of the Venezuelan masses as revolutionary subjects so that people can go on being inspired by something that's inspired on an emotional level, but also presents a high degree of rationality and a great deal of program. And there is this sense that you point out in your work and your writing that there is, that the Venezuelans are passive, that they are victims more than anything else. Sira, as Chris was saying about uh, democracy in the workplace here in the United States, there's a phrase that democracy stops at the schoolhouse door, democracy stops at the workplace door. Is the attempt within Venezuela to bring democracy into the workplace? And if so, what does that mean for the stability, and I hate to use that word, but the stability of the Venezuelan economy? How much could a democratization of the workplace adversely affect the economy, and how much could it benefit the economy? Well, that's actually an interesting uh, question. Here we've had, an, an, and this is actually a good, uh, a good lab uh, for this. During, the, during 2005 and 2006, uh, 2007 even, there were many factories that were taken over by workers and they were taken by worker control and self-managed uh, through worker control. Uh, this uh, was going on, yeah, we could see through the 2007, 2008, many, many factories were taken over by the workers from the capitalists. Um, many, many of the capitalists were actually abandoning Venezuela because Chavez had proposed uh, socialism. Um, then there were also others that were basically uh, um, generating problems in the production. So the workers took over several factories and uh, they put them to work and they uh, actually were quite efficient in, in, in working, in, in putting them back to work. Some of these factories, like in Ciudad Bolívar and Puerto Ordaz, some of these factories, even the, the capitalists had taken the, the machinery and they basically had left uh, a, basically some some junk was left in those factories and the workers uh, put those factories back to work and um, and they actually were quite efficient but many of those factories were taken over by by the bureaucracy after a while the bureaucracy took control of those uh, worker controlled spaces and they were no longer obviously worker control factories. And when the bureaucracy entered, those spaces became very, very, very inefficient. Those, those means of production became very inefficient. And this actually has been one of the big problems that we face today, because as there is a tendency towards privatization in Venezuela, that's led by the government, uh, the government often alleges that basically that we are that it hasn't worked that factories were nationalized or that they, they were taken from the capitalist sector but we were not able to make them work so that's why we have to opt for the capitalist option that is actually false basically what is definitely not what definitely doesn't work in venezuela at least is state-run factories uh, so democracy in the workplace showed that it was a good option uh, of course, 
these processes of taking two or three years. So they still were learning, the workers were learning, they were still going through their processes. So maybe they were not the most efficient, but they actually did work. And it was in time when the, the bureaucracy came in and took control of them that it actually failed. So I would say, um, of course, workers taking over factories, that's not stability, that is really turning the world upside down. Uh, but the, the, everything shows that it's possible for workers to run democratically, uh, to run uh, factories democratically. And the same with communes. Communes are, most of the communes in Venezuela, communes are territorial spaces where people organize production in a democratic way. Or, and they, in the, through processes of direct democracy, they decide what they are going to produce, how they are going to produce it, and how they are going to distribute it. So communes actually show us that uh, it is possible for people to collectively run and produce efficiently. Uh, of course, all communes in Venezuela, like all all productive areas, be them public, private, or communal, face problems today because of the massive economic crisis and the sanctions. But uh, the truth is that we know the communes well. Well, in fact, in the book, we uh, interview several communal members, including Ana Caona, who's a, a, a leader from a commune here in Caracas, and Angel Prado, who is uh, one of the commune arts of El Maisal commune in Lara State, a rural commune. And so, uh, I mean, through their voices, but you can see that there is really an expression of, of democracy and that there is the possibility of a self, there is a possibility that is here, I want to say, but it's not in the future. There's a possibility that is here of collectively and democratically producing and distributing wealth. Chris, um, you also point out that Chavez's discourse and his actions belie the notion of an infallible leadership. And even during the revolution's most glorious and radical moments, he made grave errors. Among the most memorable were the third way that he verbally espoused when taking power in 1998, his unfortunate failure to advance following the defeat of the 2002 coup attempt and his excessive focus on the mass media in the period between 2006 and 2007. Yet during most of this time, a exchange was taking place between the masses and Chavez, meaning that the masses were generally there to correct him and to ensure that the revolution maintained its emancipatory horizon. So were the people, Chris, more the revolution than Chavez? Because I'm sure that you're aware of this, the way the revolution is reported here in the States is the revolution lived and died with Chavez, that he was the revolution. So are the people more the revolution than Chavez was? Well, um, I would say yes, but it's also both. Yes and both, you know. Of course, a revolution needs to have bases. In fact, one of the um, interesting blind spots of the historiographical approach to Venezuelan revolution is the lack of interest in the 1990s. The 1990s were extremely effervescent here. In fact, the um, one of the main ways of talking about the revolution, perhaps correctly, is to talk about the 1989 Caracaso which was this more or less spontaneous rebellion that happened here. Interestingly, it coincided with the fall of the, more or less coincided with the fall of the Berlin Wall, showing that contrary to what um, Fukuyama might have said, that history had ended. In fact, history hadn't ended, and people were beginning to rebel or continuing to rebel and question the system right at that moment. So in the 1990s was a time of incredible effervescence here, and it's kind of a blind spot. Uh, maybe most um, mainstream accounts of revolutions don't much look at their proximate history, but it would be important to recover these different movements and the 
widespread disobedience that happened in Venezuela in the 1990s, and Chavez himself emerged from that. I think um, part of the democratic character of the Venezuelan revolution was, of course, the emphasis on participative democracy, but it was also what I would call like a dialectical relationship that Chavez had with the masses. So Chavez had Chavez listened to them um, and responded and corrected his errors. I, one of the things I do not say in that paragraph, nor do I say in the entire introduction, I do not offer an explanation for why this ceased to happen. I believe it happened through a kind of breakdown in middle range organizations in the Bolivarian process. In other words, they were kind of like conveyor belt between the leadership and the and the uh, and the masses, and those broke down and during the near the end of the uh, first decade of the 20, 21st century. Um, but so what's important is that there was a, a relationship between the masses and Chavez was a leader in the best sense, a leader who responded to represented and corrected all the time. Again, that runs that runs in the face of how Chavez is normally presented, as you were pointing out. They'd like to present him as somebody who took all the decisions, was always right. For example, one thing here that we think was an error, uh, not an outright error, but an error of a kind was one of Chavez's last major projects was uh, Mission, Grand Mission Vivienda Venezuela, which was a giant housing project. And the housing project was good in the sense that people needed the housing, but it could have been done better. It could have involved participation. So um, instead, houses were just given to people, better that they have them than that they not have them. But instead of involving people in the process, which was another kind of proposal, they were just handed out. I would like to say, and I, partly because we're getting to the end, I think one of the most important things about the Venezuelan revolution, you know, the saying about a photograph, well, in a photograph being worth a thousand words, well, a revolutionary example is also worth a thousand words. So I think if we look, if, I, if we go back to 1989, which, which I just mentioned, you know, that was when the idea came out that history had ended and Venezuelans say, no, history hasn't ended. We're taking history into our own hands. And it's one thing to say that it's another thing to show it, to show that there can be kind of like an opening in what people consider like chronological time. There can be a new time, a time of open possibilities. And I think our book, I hope our book captures some of that spirit there's an open set of possibilities, a different future is possible, and people can achieve it. That, I think, is worth more than a thousand words. Uh, Chris, I'm going to have one more question for you. Uh, but, Sarah, before I ask Chris, uh, you also point out that the socialist and radically transformative project of Chavismo, however much it is an embarrassment to constituted power in Venezuela and the global establishment, lives on in the masses in their thought and action. So I, I just want to point this out. I just want to make sure people understand why the global north, why the west, why the United States views Chavismo as such a threat. An embarrassment can lead to awkward feelings, feelings of shame, and also a greater sense of self-consciousness as in an undue awareness of oneself, one's appearance, or one's actions. So, Sira, does Chavismo make Venezuela and the global establishment of capitalism, uh, does it make that establishment self-aware when it comes to the shortcomings and problems of the capitalism they support? Is the threat to the global north that Chavismo reveals the shortcomings of capitalism that capitalists do not want to admit? Well, I would say that the main threat that, that uh, the Global North sees, the establishment in the Global North sees in the Bolivarian process is a project of sovereignty, of popular and national sovereignty. I, would say, I think that that's the key for the threat that they perceive in this process. Of course, uh, this process proposes a radical alternative that breaks with capitalism. Basically, any project 
uh, that proposes sovereignty, both popular and national sovereignty, is going to, if it if it goes to its fullest, it's eventually going to lead to a rupture with capitalism. That's what happened with the Bolivarian Revolution. The Bolivarian Revolution didn't start socialist, but it was it was from the beginning highly democratic, and sovereignty was at, at its core. So those two things ended up meaning that the, this process had to propose socialism as it's called eventually, as Chavez did in 2006. So I would say that the main, that the reason why this project is a threat to, to the establishment in the global north is that precisely, that, it, that it's a project that proposes to, to build sovereignty, national and popular sovereignty, and national and popular sovereignty, of course, goes, go against the collective interests of capitalists, of the dominating class. And so they had to, they actually had to, they acted according to their, to their interest and rationally when they went and they continued to go against the Bolivarian process. One last question for each of you, uh, and it's we've been speaking with Sarah Pasquale Marquina and Chris Gilbert, co-authors of Venezuela, The Present as Struggle, Voices from the Bolivarian Revolution. They are both writers at Venezuela Analysis. You can find that website at venezuelanalysis.com. Our final question for each and every one of our guests, I promise we do this every time, is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. So, Chris, let's start with you. You write that, uh, contrary to popular opinion, Chavez was, for most of his trajectory, the very antithesis of the strongman figure that dominates politics today. And you and Sarah point out in your writing how Chavez is mischaracterized as a populist and mischaracterized as a strongman. But on March 5th, 2013, the day Hugo Chavez died, Human Rights Watch posted an article that stated Hugo Chavez's presidency was characterized by a dramatic concentration of power and open disregard for basic human rights guarantees. They cite an assault on judicial independence through the expansion of the Supreme Court from 12 to 20 seats, uh, rejection of the human rights scrutiny by the Internet, Inter-American Court of Human Rights and preventing the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights as well as you know, from uh, entering the country and checking on human rights abuses, as well as embracing abuse of nations. It goes on, and uh, that's basically how it is, uh, where it ends. So, Chris, how was Chavez not like a strongman? Did he rule as a strongman is defined through force, threats, or violence? Did he threaten his political opponents, even threaten them with violence, if not employ force against them, which is the definition of a strongman? Yeah, well, I think that kind of presentation of Chavez, as you can imagine, I consider it very um, mistaken and false. Uh, really, I mean, instead of asking me, it would be better to ask somebody who go to one of the barrios here and ask people what they think, because I think it's more important to look at what actually happened under Chavez. You know, what did people experience? I think, and you know, it's, if you're talking about democracy, now people talk about the 99%. Well, what's democracy for the 99%? That's the key thing. Chavez did democracy for the 99%. Under Chavez, all kinds of people had voices who never had voices before. All kinds of people appeared in the national media. And by the way, the media, and this, um, I congratulate you on your effort. The media's um, access to the media is one of the ways in which democracy can be amplified. So it's only a very limited, it's, would be, it's taking the, the yardstick of Montesquieu, among other things, when you mentioned the division of powers. How can it be that that idea from the 18th century is going to be the yardstick for democracy for all of history? In fact, there's innumerable examples of what's democracy, Greek democracy. Greek democracy was highly participative 
And I think, you know, that more, more authentic democracy, democracy, of course, contains the word the people, which remember, and if the people can't, don't see themselves as representative, then it's not democracy. So I would maintain that Chavez was an eminently democratic uh, leader. Sometimes these things revolve, uh, sometimes the accusations are in bad faith. Sometimes they involve ignorance of cult cultural um, phenomena. No, every, every um, country has its own political culture, and I don't mean to fall into relativism. But it will be important to look at, for example, what Venezuelan leadership is like. Venezuela, and this probably has to do with the indigenous, partly has to do with the indigenous tradition, and partly has to do with the wars of the federal wars here in the 19th century. There were always leaders, but these leaders were kind of recallable. By the way, that's another important principle of, of democracy. And Chavez always faced recall referendums when they were put to him and won them. So a kind of leadership that's highly responsive to the people. It's a leadership indeed, but it has to maintain its closeness to the people. To me, that's eminently democratic. It fits well with Venezuelan culture. And is, again, I would point to the fact that only by um, asking the people here would you find that they felt that was a highly democratic moment, which they were actors in history and not just passive onlookers. That is an exceptional answer to a question from hell. Our question from hell for you, Sarah, is the day before the inauguration of U.S. President Joe Biden. Reuters reported U.S. President-elect Joe Biden's administration will continue to recognize Venezuelan opposition leader Juan Guaido as the South American country's president. According to Anthony Blinken, Biden's then nominee for and now confirmed secretary of state. The next day, in reference to the vote for president being certified and the process of electing a president moving forward on Inauguration Day, President Biden said during his inauguration speech, democracy has prevailed, which was the front page headline in the following day's New York Times. What does the Biden administration, Sarah, what does the Biden administration recognition of Juan Guaido do for democracy efforts in Venezuela? Can democracy prevail in Venezuela as long as the United States and other Western nations recognize Guaido as president? Well, obviously, uh, it is criminal that the U.S. Rec uh, will not recognize the democratically elected government of Nicolás Maduro as the, as the government. And so... In that sense, let's say that in the international correlation of forces, it uh, damages, to say the obvious, Venezuela. However, democracy is something that is built on the on the ground. Yes, when there is a crisis, maybe things are maybe there might be some small interruptions to the process of building democracy. But I believe that democracy is something that we have to build in on the ground here. Venezuelans, uh, we have to build, those who are committed to this project, we have to build democracy. And so I believe that uh, even if the sanctions uh, go on, which they will go on, uh, we have the obligation and the, the real possibility of uh, building a democratic alternative, a, a revolutionary alternative. Actually, it is important to point out that in economic terms, when Chavez came into power, uh, the price of oil was about two or three dollars a barrel, five dollars a barrel. So it was super, super low. I mean, the income of Venezuela was extremely low, and yet that didn't uh, limit the possibility of making a rupture with the old forms of liberal bourgeois democracy that had been established in Venezuela. So looking at that, or later in, in the year 2002, there was an oil coup in which basically um, the PDVSA, which is the oil company, uh, stopped producing because there was so, a sort of uh, um, leadership uh, walkout. And so, and, and also uh, the CIA actually participated in 
breaking the infrastructure, the te technological infrastructure uh, that uh, that was important for the production of oil. So, and even in that time, when, which was also very, very difficult, basically oil production came to zero and there was like no food and no nothing in Venezuela. And that time was also highly democratic time. So I think that when we look at our own history, we can see that the times of economic and political hardship don't necessarily mean that those times have to limit the construction of democracy. So I think that, of course, these are difficult times and we have to recognize this, that and we have to continue to fight against the blockade and US interventionism. But at the same time, we have a goal here and we hope that internationally internationalists will support the people as we try to recover the democratic vocation of this process and the communal vocation of the Bolivarian revolution. Yeah, and I think that's the most interesting part of your work. That if you you know, if our listeners want to know what is really happening with the Venezuelan people and the agency of people over power of being the real power, they should definitely check out your book, Venezuela: The President's Struggle: Voices from the Bolivarian Revolution. Our guests have been Sierra Pasquale Marquina and Chris Gilbert, the co-authors of that book. You can find their writing at VenezuelaAnalysis.com. This is really, really important work because, as I've been stating throughout this interview, the only thing that the establishment media here in the United States focuses on is the establishment. So you don't get the news of what's happening on the ground, whether that's in Venezuela or whether that's happening here on the south side of Chicago when it comes to community activism. So I cannot thank you enough, Sierra and Chris, really, really a fantastic book. And thank you so much for reaching out to us and being on our show. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you very much. Yeah. Take care. Bringing you bong hitting journalism since 1996. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Richard Norwood. Richard, what the hell is this week's question from hell and how are our listeners responding? This week's question from hell is, what's something about you that only the algorithm knows? All right. And we have a few answers. Let's hear it. Ronaldo says that the algorithm knows about him is that just between me that, sorry, his answer is, that's just between me and the algorithm, and we're going to keep it that way. <laughs> All right. If you don't mind. Sure. Great. I like his personification of the algorithm. That's awesome. And so the algorithm knows about Pete. He knows, the algorithm knows that Pete has a passion for window treatments. Really? <laughs> Apparently. I so Jeffrey, our Jeffrey, his answer is, I have discovered a musical fruit and nutritionists hate me. <laughs> what does the algorithm know about you? Tyler R. says, more than I could ever possibly know about myself. <laughs> no, that's a good answer. <laughs> and Jeff C.'s answer is, I am in the dark as only the algorithm knows. Right. And that's what we have today. That's the answers that we have so far for this week's Question Mail. The person with, your, with our favorite answer to this week's Question Mail, maybe yours too, wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want, you can just go to This Is Hell right now, click on support and see all of our different merchandise and the ways that you can support completely listener-supported This Is Hell. You can leave your answer at our Facebook page, you can tweet it to us, you can email it to us, but we have to have the your answer by the end of tomorrow's show, Thursday's show, when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. Tomorrow, Jeff celebrates Fat History Month. 
Uh, anything else we want to mention here? Oh, Richard, who is on tomorrow's show beginning at our normal time, 10 a.m. Chicago time, here at thisishell.com? Sorry, I had to bring that up again. That's um, right. Arad Kalasi on his monthly review article, The Ecological State. And Jeff... In the moment of truth. Says something about Fat History Month. <laughs> yes, Fat History Month. I don't, I'm not aware of that History Month. I'm very curious about it. Thanks to everyone who has supported This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can find all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell, including all of our merchandise. And that's exactly what Andrew T. did. So thanks, Andrew, and for doing your part and making This Is Hell possible. You can also support This Is Hell by becoming a subscriber to our weekly Patreon podcast that has a new monologue every week from me, as well as a classic archived interview that unfortunately cannot be found anywhere else online at this time, as we are trying to rebuild our archives with your support by subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell. This week, we'll be playing our 2007 interview with the recently passed journalist, James Ridgway. And I'll be telling you how I am being gaslighted, gaslit, and I'll reveal who is gaslighting me. But again, you can only hear James and his reporting on another potential suspect in the Oklahoma City bombing and find out who would dare gaslight me by becoming a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Tune in to tomorrow's show streaming live, 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com. Listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Richard Norwood. Thank you, Richard, for producing. Thanks to Sierra Pasquale Marquina and Chris Gilbert, our guests who are co-authors of Venezuela, The Present as Struggle, Voices from the Bolivarian Revolution. And thanks to Alex for booking today's guests. With my most sincere apologies, yes, I am a white dude, but keep in mind, I'm also a very proud race and gender traitor. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.